So let me add my welcome to you. Uh, good morning. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. Whether you're online or in person, uh, thank you for taking your time to be here with us. We're so glad you could join us. Uh, we're in the, first, in the book of 1 Peter, so if you want to grab your Bibles or your phones, whatever your, is easiest for you, uh, we are finishing our series in 1 Peter today. Been in there since March, um, and we're excited to, to finish it up today. Um, I will try not to go too long because, as you know, we've got a food truck outside that I'm excited to get to. Um, but I'm guessing now about a third of you are distracted thinking about what you're going to order for lunch. So let's bring it back into the Word. Uh, there will be time for that later as we look at the menu. But when I took a, took a look at this passage for the first time uh, the other day, well, I guess a couple weeks ago now, um, and all I could think of was, well, thank you, Don, for cutting the book that way with the whole two verses left in the book, uh, naturally. Um, but as I dove into these verses, I realized how rich they really were. And although it, on the surface it seems um, pretty non-ungeneric, something easy to skip over, something easy to just kind of glaze by. It's what we often do as we get to these final greetings, is we kind of just glaze it over and move on to the next thing we're reading. And oftentimes, this is a, a passage that it would be hard-pressed for a church to do a sermon on because they're thinking about other things they want to get to. But I want to take time this morning to really dive into these couple verses um, and just see just the value of what God brings in our time to get today. Um, and I think verses like these are just show the importance of exegetical teaching, walking through a book verse by verse, because unlike many churches that might skip it over, we see the value of all God's uh, Word being breathed out by Him, inspired, and there's something today even in these short few verses for us. So join with me as we look at 1 Peter 5, verses 12 to 14. It says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who likewise is chosen, sends your greetings, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let me pray. Jesus, we just thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, these two verses, Lord, you speak through those even. You have something to say to us this morning. So I pray that you would speak through me, that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would use my words. Uh, any words that are from you would be remembered, and any words that are from me, Lord, be quickly forgotten. So we just thank you uh, for how you will work. Thank you for the word you bring that is always faithful to accomplish the purpose you have designed for it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I have three points for you this morning. Uh, it's simply the true grace of God, stand firm, and the body as family. So let's dive in there. Point one, the true grace of God. As I look through these verses, the first thing that really stuck out to me was really the middle of verse 12, where it says, this is the true grace of God. And so it begs the question, what is this? If this is kind of the crux of the whole verse, you have to ask the question, what is this? And to find the answer for that, you kind of look back at what it says in the rest of it. It says, I have written. So it connects this idea of, I have written, this is the true grace of God. So everything he has written up to this point in the first five chapters, this is the grace of God to us. And so you see throughout this, this passage, you have to look at what, it, what else is God, was, does uh, Peter say about the grace of God throughout the book? 
And so there's a couple places that I want to hit as we go through this to look at, okay, if Peter's talking about the grace of God, what is he saying is this grace of God? And so I want to take a look at a handful of passages through this, the book and talk about that. So first I want to look at is 1 Peter 4. It says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And you just see in these verses, first and foremost, that this is grace that comes from God. He is the one who supplies it. He is the one that ultimately is the creator of that grace. And you see that we are merely stewards of that grace. Speaking and serving are the grace of God at work in us and through us. And we also see in this verse that all of it is to point to the glory of God. It's not for our glory, but it's about God's glory. You can, yeah, there you go. Jump forward, there you go. So let's see what else Peter has to say about grace. If this is, it's from God, it is for his glory, but it's us working through us in that process. Let's look at 1 Peter 1.10. says, Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. And so you see in this verse, what he's looking at is the Old Testament prophecies, how all the prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, ultimately looking at the first coming of Jesus. And then in 1 Peter 1.13, a couple of verses later, it says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So now looking forward to the second coming. So you see what Peter's doing here is that this, is gr this grace was ordained from God. It was to work in us and through us. And this grace appeared both in the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. Everything coming to us in the second coming of Jesus, the deliverance from wrath, the entrance into eternal life, is the grace of God. Let's look at 1 Peter 3, verse 7. It says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so, to your, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So you see in this verse that we are both co-heirs, of this grace, but also it is the grace of life. So grace brings life as well. And let's look at that verse we looked at just a minute ago in 1 Peter 4 one more time. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Everything we do in the body of Christ is possible due to the grace that God provides. This grace that goes amongst one another in varied ways, in varied gifts that God provides. So this grace is of God, it is from Him, He is the supplier, but we are the beneficiaries of grace. Since so you look back at that verse uh, we started in 1 Peter 5, it says the true grace of God. And so you, I love that you break down that verse, it's the idea of grace of God, it's from Him. But that grace is that we are the beneficiaries in that process. We are stewards of that grace. God uses the grace that he provides through us for the benefit of the body. And also important to note here, why does Peter include the word true? He could have just said, this is the grace of God. But why does Peter say this is the true grace of God? Which 
it begs the assumption that if this is the true grace of God, there was also false grace of God being communicated among the early church. And so where do we see evidence of that? We look at uh, elsewhere in the New Testament. Let's look at the book of Jude. Jude verse, uh, well, there's only one chapter there. Jude verse 4 says this, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So there were grace preachers then, and there's grace preachers now, that can distort this grace of God into lawlessness and sensuality. It was cheap grace that really didn't come with being tied to life change. It didn't bring our lives under the lordship and masterhood of, of Jesus Christ. As we see in the, our verses back in 1 Peter, the grace of God provided freely to us empowers us and calls us to stand firm. It doesn't just leave us at a, a grace of God that's left there, but it's a grace of God that then turns into standing firm and equipping us and empowering us. So oftentimes we think this idea of standing, we think of it as a lack of motion, like the opposite of running. But really, as what Scripture uses stand for, it really stand is the opposite of falling. This idea of standing firm in the faith, standing firm to resist the devil, fight, fighting the fight of faith, standing firm in grace. I mean, I couldn't have planned the FCA video, and it talked about the same idea of standing firm, fighting the fight of faith. It's not an opposite of running, but it's an opposite of falling down. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you look at these verses, and there's so many good things in these verses. I, I love these verses, but a handful of things I want to point out is just the idea of the connections here. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, is the gift of God, not a result of works. So what he's saying here is grace is not a result of works. Nothing we could do would make us receive more grace. We have been given God's grace freely, but we are then, because of God's grace, created as new beings for good works. So grace not only is not a result of works, but it does empower us to do good works in that process. So again, not a result of good works, but for good works. So you think of this idea of the true grace of God. If we get the grace of God right, it is both pardon to survive as well as power to stand. Both pardon and power. It's a twofold grace. And so this idea of the, the false teachers of grace that were abounding in the time, they were really only che- teaching the free grace of the pardon of sin and not actually turn that into empowering you to stand, empowering you to live out the Christian life, which is so vital and crucial to what Paul, Peter is trying to get at in this verses. is both pardon to survive and grace is power to stand, to do good works. And that leads me to the second point, to stand firm. If this grace of God that is from God, this grace of God that He supplies, this grace of God that empowers us to stand, empowers us to live out life change, then it looks to stand firm. And this is the true grace of God is ultimately also to stand firm for that purpose. So what does standing firm in the grace of God look like? 
As we look back at the purpose of this letter, he says just a couple of verses earlier, he's written briefly, briefly exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. So exhorting and declaring. So exhorting, it's this idea of encouraging, pushing forward. Paul, or Peter, really throughout this letter, it's been full of exhortations. Throughout the whole book, we've been hitting exhortation after exhortation. There's 35 imperatives in 1 Peter, and here's just a few of them. In chapter 1, believe. Chapter 1, again, hope. A few verses later, be holy. Conduct yourselves in fear. Obey the truth. Love each other. Be subject. Honor everyone. Keep your tongue from evil. Honor Christ as holy. Be self-controlled and sober. Rejoice. Don't be surprised at trials. Entrust yourselves to God. Clothe yourselves with humility. Resist the devil. Stand in grace. Greet with a kiss of love. As you see, the book of 1 Peter is just littered with exhortations and commands of what it looks like to stand firm, what it looks like to not just know the grace of God, but respond to it and act out of it. These are all commands that Peter gives us. All are ways that Peter calls us to stand in the grace of God. And you look at this list, they, a lot of them aren't flashy, big, grand gestures in front of people. What it is, they're choices you have to make intentionally, internally, in your heart and soul, day in, day out. They're choices you make when no one's looking. It's the choices that God's doing inside of you through inner transformation of that grace. And I know there are multitudes of reasons why we don't stand firm. Both external and internal factors impact how we respond and live. Present circumstances are constantly competing for our interests. Outside pressures from friends or colleagues or social media are compelling us to run to other things for life. For much of my life, I mean, part of my story is that people-pleasing is kind of some of my story, and so for much of my life, my actions were dictated by what I think other people were going to think about what I did. It's such a backwards rat race. It's ridiculous. But it's so easy to fall into those things. Our phones are a factor, constantly distracting. Perhaps for you, it's, it's, it's that we aren't spending time faithfully in our Bibles. It's obviously to be transformed by this grace, we have to be in the Word, letting that grace wash over us, and being transformed. And how can we expect to stand firm if we aren't filling our mind with the Word of God? Don reminded us last week that our enemy is prowling around like a lion, seeking to devour those whoever he can. There's always more important things on our to-do list to get done. Perhaps an undisciplined lifestyle has led to apathy and a lack of the word, a lack of counsel, or a lack of community. Maybe you have doubts or fears over how God has, didn't meet you in the way you wanted him to previously. Or maybe you just have doubts about God in general. Our hearts and flesh are at war inside of us constantly, and oftentimes, if we are really admit to ourselves, we aren't desiring of God. Perhaps there are areas of our lives that we're still not fully giving over control to God. Like, yeah, like, I know, like, I let God in my heart, but there's that one closet in the back of my life that I just don't want Him to touch. Which, when you really think about that, it's, it's pretty ridiculous because it's, like, it's not like He already doesn't know it. He already knows what's inside of it. 
And we have this facade like, oh yeah, he can, he can go anywhere, do anything in my life except for that closet. It's like, he already knows. Or perhaps you're in the mindset, it's just easier to not stand firm. It's just easier to not put in the work in that process. And you're right, it is easier. It's easier to coast and float through life, letting life hit you with whatever waves it wants to hit you with. But standing firm oftentimes can be the mundane choices, the day-in, day-out choices. It's often not instant satisfaction. It's faithfulness over time, God working in our hearts and our souls to make us more like Him. It can be scary, it can be difficult to wage war within ourselves, to do the things God calls us to do. It's a daily battle and a daily choice. So every person that's played a, a video game will appreciate this reference. This really isn't a single-player game. We're in co-op mode, and we've got the best partner of all time and God, the Holy Spirit, working with us. So Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I love this verse. And I'm an audience of participation. If you look at these verses, what is our role? What's it say that we have to do? Anybody? I heard it back there. Work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So it's our job to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And what's God's role? I hear the mumbling. Yeah, to work and to will. So it's God who works in us to work and to will, and to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so I love that equation. It's it's fancy Christian term of cooperative sanctification. It's both us working and God working together in this process. It is God working in the back end of in our hearts to give us the desire and the ability to make the choices. But there's still the choices we have to make at the same time. So really and He's done all the heavy lifting. We just have to make the choice in that process. Both God and each of us have a part to play if we're to stand firm and become more like Jesus over the course of our lives. And like I said, it's not oftentimes flashy, grand gestures. It's the mundane choices we make day in, day out. And God uses faithful obedience over time to make drastic changes in our lives. The things that are really hard to stand firm in right now, you look at that list, there's different ones that probably come to mind. They won't always be those hard choices. As we seek to live out this Christian faith and as we seek to stand firm in our faith because of the grace of God's empowering us, each and every time we make those good choices, it becomes a little easier the next time and easier the next time and easier the next time. Over time, those choices become habits and they become natural patterns of life. You ask anybody who's, who has good, solid times of the Lord in the Bible every day, it didn't start that way. It started with a choice day in, day out. Sometimes it was easy, sometimes it was hard. But over time, it became such a habit that they couldn't go anywhere else but to start there. And over time, those habits become natural patterns in your life. And five years from now, as you continue to make those good choices that God's grace has empowered us to make, we won't be stuck in the same spot. We'll be a little more like Jesus in that process. And the thing you struggle with now won't be the thing you struggle with five years from now. But God will continue to peel back the onion layer of our, layers of our heart 
There'll be something else that God's working on and improving us and growing us that we're not even aware of at the moment isn't an issue. Often, we have to choose just to do the thing. Stealing a line from friend Katie over here. To stand firm, whatever that thing is, even when we don't necessarily feel like it. And we can willingly choose to do so because we know God, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, God working inside of us, He gives us the ability and the desire to make the choices. But we still have to make the choice day in, day out. If you want to learn more about this, Katie's class still has a couple weeks left. It's not too late to get in there. Wednesday evenings, 7 p.m., up in the Owen room. Show up. It'll be a good time. Paul in Romans 12 says this. says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By testing, you may discern that what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And see, see this idea again. We are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. But as we do that, as we make those choices, we'll be renew, our mind will be renew, renewed by him, and our lives will be transformed because of it. So as you willingly choose to present your bodies, your mind, your heart, your soul, to God and willingly choose to renew your mind through his word, you will be transformed by the empowering grace of God. And I, know, and I know there are some of us in this room sitting here thinking, but Eric, if you only knew how long I've been struggling with this thing, if you only knew that, it's, it's been as long as I can remember, and it's not just that, it's just not that easy. And let's look back for, for a moment at our passage. So again, Peter talked about this idea of it's to exhort and declare. So exhort, we talked about there, the idea of encouraging and, test, and encouraging that process. But declaring is really to testify, to witness to. And what you can't see is the nuance of this word in the Greek. The word declare, it's not the word that most verses throughout the New Testament uses for declare. It's a slightly different one. Um, and it literally means to declare as a witness or a testimony. And so what Peter's doing here is he's saying, I'm a witness to this. It's not just I can exhort you in the theoretical, but it's like I've lived this. I get it. This is my story. These same words show up a few verses earlier in 1 Peter 5.1. In 5.1, we see that Peter was not just saying these things. So yeah, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So again, exhort... And witness is the exact same Greek word as we used a few verses later in de as declare. And so what in 1 Peter 5.1, he was saying, I know it, I've seen it, I lived it as an elder. He's now saying to all of what he's saying throughout the book of 1 Peter, I've been exhorting and I've been declaring through my life and I've seen it true. And I love the fact that it's Peter writing this. Peter, the same guy who as Jesus was being arrested, Denied even knowing Jesus three times to a little girl. And yet Peter, this is the same Peter that now on the tail end of his life knows deep down the true grace of God that pardons sin and empowers him to stand firm. It's the same Peter that not too long after denying Christ to a little girl stood in front of the exact same council that convicted Jesus and testified of the grace and the good news of the gospel 
in front of hundreds that could have had him murdered just like they did Jesus. It's that grace of God that empowered him to stand firm. And like I said, now it's the same Peter at the end of his life that's seen it countless times. He's seen it through his life, throughout the stories and acts and the rest of the early church. He's seen it to be true. This is the same Peter whose name means rock and the same Peter who Christ used to build his church upon. Peter knows the grace of God that empowers him to stand firm. Do you? We looked earlier at Ephesians 2. It is the grace of God that's a free gift for anyone who would take it to pardon us from sin and empower us to stand firm. Do you know that grace? And Peter also knows that although standing firm is oftentimes an internal decision-making process that we have to make over time with God and the Holy Spirit working inside of us, he knows it's done in the context of a body, a body that, of Christ that supports and encourages and challenges and pushes, pushes us. It's only through the support of those around us in our, the body that we're able to take those steps sometimes. We need each other. We're built for community with one another. And the last thing I want to look at is, is really the people of this passage. We looked at this idea of the letter was uh, to exhort and declare. It was written, the true grace of God to stand firm. But then there's a number of names here. And I want to take a moment just to look at some of their stories and how these stories, that they got it as well. So the first one that you see there, um, you see these characters that can, you can easily miss. It's easy to pass by and to see this little random like, end, of this, end of this letter of greetings you're like, okay, well, that's another guy. I don't really know. It's okay. But these names are forever etched in history, forever etched in the words of God, forever etched in the story, our story. I'm sure it's somewhere down the line. And it's oftentimes for their faithful obedience to the word. And you see these guys play background roles to guys like Paul and Peter. Paul and Peter are the ones we know, but the guys like Sylvanus, and we'll get to later, Mark, they play crucial pieces in these stories that oftentimes go unheralded and forgotten about. But God knows their story, and God knows what he's done in their life, and he's no, he knows what they've done through them. And so first, we'll look at Sylvanus. Sylvanus was the messenger of this letter, and quite possibly also the scribe of this letter. Uh, one of the things they note in the writing of 1 Peter is that it's much more formal, nice Greek than what Peter would have typically known as a Galilean fisherman. Um, versus Silas may have known and been more studied, so it might be him who actually written, wrote it as Peter transcribed it to him. And he probably cleaned it up a little bit here and there. Um, but also, he was the deliverer. He took the letter around to the churches in Asia Minor. As well, he was mentioned in 2 Corinthians, and it was a co-sender of the book of 1 Thessalonians. Again, these little connections we don't necessarily always pay attention to, but Sylvanus shows up multiple times through the story. And Sylvanus is also known, most likely, as the New Testament, as Silas, who appears in the book of Acts in chapter 15 as a prophet and encourager. He was sent to Antioch to encourage the Christian believers that had been deceived by some of this false grace. And he then became a companion of Paul's on a second missionary journey after Paul and Barnabas split. He was in prison with Paul during the earthquake, and, and he was in prison with Paul when the earthquake hit and the chains broke off and the doors came open in the jail. He's part of many coming to know Christ throughout the Roman Empire. But little things that doesn't mention when it just says, by Sylvanus, 
but he was a crucial member of Paul's team, but didn't take the glory for himself. He gave the glory to God in that process. And now we see here at the end of 1 Peter, not only was a faithful companion of Paul, but he's a faithful brother of Peter's as well. And the next name you see down the list here is she who is at Babylon, right after staying firm at it. So in the Old Testament, physical Babylon was the place of exile. We know that Babylon here can't be the same Babylon because at this time in history, Babylon was essentially in ruins. Uh, it had been almost deserted. Uh, after the Roman Empire took over, Babylon became non-existent, essentially. And so it's not the same Babylon from Mesopotamia physically. Um, but what we do know is the early church oftentimes used Babylon as kind of a keyword, a code word, that became synonymous with the center of worldly power and the opposition to God's people. To where before, in the Old Testament, Babylon was a physical exile place where God's people were. But throughout the early Christian church, the new people of God, Peter was continuous imagery from the Old Testament, the new people of God in exile, their home was not here, their home was ultimately heaven. But the Babylon of the day was Rome. It was the center of the power, and this was written, as we know, right towards the beginning of a lot of the persecution that existed in Rome. And so they saw that opposition to, the, to God's people and the center of the worldly power. And so Babylon became synonymous with that. And you see that again throughout all of Revelation. Oftentimes in Revelation, when they're using Babylon, they're using that as a reference to Rome. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, is ultimately, as we look at these key words and texts, it's a fancy way to say the church at Rome. All times in the letters, she was a, and who is likewise chosen, who is likewise chosen is the key there. Those who are likewise chosen in Rome. So most likely this is saying that the church of Rome was sending their greetings. And really the other thing he's doing here is he's calling us back to she who is Babylon, who is likewise chosen, calling us back to the very first verse of the book. Verse 1, 1. Peter writes to the elect exiles. He's using the exact same language and the exact same connection there to remind him what it's all about, who you are, whose you are in that process. And that brings us to the final character here is Mark. And I love the story of Mark. Um, there's so much written about Mark that we don't even realize. I remember in college when I was first kind of showed some of these connections with Mark, uh, it blew me away. So Mark first appeared in Acts 12, verse 25. It says this, And Barnabas and Saul returned to, from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So kind of this idea of John Mark was what people called him, or Mark or John, depending on where they went. In 1 Corinthians, we learn that John Mark is also Barnabas' cousin. And we also learn in, in a couple chapters later in Acts that he would accompany Barnabas and Paul on their first missionary journey until partway through he abandoned them, deserted them, and left. And as Paul and Barnabas went back to start their second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to bring his cousin along, which led to a really sharp disagreement and Paul and Barnabas splitting ways. And why I love the story of John Mark is it's a story of redemption. Perhaps John Mark was too young and immature for the adventure he was going on. 
It certainly looks from the outside that he made a bad decision to desert Paul. And at this juncture, Paul, as he was starting a secondary missionary journey, could not afford to have that happen again. He couldn't afford to go and have him be abandoned again. So he made the call like, hey, this can't happen. We need to not do this. At the same time, Barnabas wanted to care for and restore his cousin. And despite the immaturity, he saw potential. Neither of those were wrong choices. There are times to come alongside and care. And there's times where it's not wise to thrust an immature believer into leadership. Neither one were condemned as wrong. And for the rest of Acts, as that second missionary journey starts, we don't really hear much of anything about John Mark. The next time you see his name is in 2 Timothy 4.11. And Paul writes this. He says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for my ministry. So now at the end of Paul's life, we don't know what took place over time, but John Mark knew, knew the grace of God and he stood firm, made those mundane choices day in, day out. And now at the end of Paul's life, where at once Paul said, I can't have him come with me, Paul's now saying, bring him to me for he's useful. There's been restoration. And we see as well in 1 Peter that he, he's also become like a son to Peter. So it started out as a possibly immature young believer that abandoned ship has now become useful and like a son to two of the most influential men in the early church. And many believe also this was the same Mark that wrote our New Testament letter of Mark. So you see how far he'd come from being a young cousin of Barnabas that was just tagging along and abandoning ship to writing one of the Gospels. And oftentimes we miss those little connections, little pieces that add up over time. What a story of redemption. There's a quick side note of application here. Whatever your story up to this point, whatever God is taking you through, whatever mistakes you may have made, you never know where, what God might have in store for you down the road. If you would have told me in high school that I'd be standing up here as a pastor, I would have called you crazy. I was a young believer. I just came to Christ in my sophomore year of high school. And I never would have thought this would be where God had me. And the last thing I want to note throughout these verses is really the, the look at the language used throughout this letter. Sylvanus, a brother. Mark, a son. Greetings. A kiss of love. In verse 14, one of the beauties of the bodies of, body of believers is that we're not in it alone. We're together as a body. God's not just saved us to do it on our own. He saved us to a body. In 1 Peter 1, we'll look at a couple different languages of love Peter uses throughout Scripture. Look at this idea of love and this familial love that he uses. So let's look at 1 Peter 1. It says, having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. First Peter 2, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. First Peter 2 again, love the brotherhood. First Peter 4, above all, keep loving one another. First Peter 4 again, beloved. First Peter 5, greet one another with a kiss of love. You see this connection that Peter is so deeply caring for as a family, these believers that have been saved along with him. 
wants us to leave us with this idea that Christ provides us a family. It's not dutiful, doing nice things. It's commitment and truly loving one another, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, love. And as I read this, I was convicted. I thought about the time when this was written. Think about, think about New Testament, early church. They're writing in a day and time where the only way they were able to see one another is by physically traveling to them or sending a letter with somebody as a courier to go. They had every excuse in the world to not be connected across the entire empire in the known world at the time. Yet in our day and age, where we have phone and computer that's just a few seconds away from getting together with someone, we neglect that, and yet they went out of their way and they knew each other well enough across multiple cities and countries as brothers and family. Their care of one another, the dedication to one another, it's a challenge to us. We live in a time we have all the means to be connected like they were, and yet we neglect that so often. We can come with all sorts of excuses, but the question remains, will we take Peter's command seriously? How can we love our family well? Maybe it's taking a meal to someone or helping, helping someone by using the skills God's provided to you. Maybe it's just taking the time, taking a minute to pick up the phone and call someone and connect with them. Or maybe it starts here on a Sunday, just having a conversation with someone you don't know, introducing yourself, greeting them, taking those first steps in a new relationship. It has to start somewhere. So will we take Peter's command to love one another seriously? The worship team can come join me. And Peter ends his letter with a simple phrase here. It says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. As Peter knows it is through the grace of God that brings peace that surpasses understanding. Even in the midst of the trials they're going through. You think about 1 Peter, what we see over and over and over is perseverance in the midst of trials and suffering. And this also goes back to very early in the book of 1 Peter. In chapter 3, it says, May peace and joy be multiplied to you. Again, he's wrapping that bow in the whole letter, bringing it back to the very beginning, reminding us that peace is to be had for those who are in Christ. So my big idea is simply this. Stand firm by the grace of God together with the body. Again, my big idea is stand firm by the grace of God, together with the body. It is the grace of God working in us to provide pardon for sin. It is the grace of God working in us to empower us to stand firm. As Tim Keller puts it, the gospel is not just the ABC of the Christian life, but it is the A to Z of the Christian life. Not just the ABCs of the Christian life, but the A to Z of the Christian life. When I was working in college ministry, the saying I always used was, you never graduate from the gospel. The gospel is what brought us to know Jesus. It's what continues to grow us each step of the way. It is the gospel working into deeper and deeper layers of the onion layers of our heart that bring us into a deeper understanding of who God is and help us to be transformed more in his image. Knowing the gospel and transforming power of his grace is an ongoing process as we peel back those onion layers to deeper and deeper ways. And God doesn't leave us on our own in this, but he saves us to a family of believers to walk alongside one another. 
And one of the best places to experience this idea of the gospel going deeper and walking alongside one another is small groups. So we'll be kicking those off again next month. So if you aren't in a small group, man, I implore you to check them, check them out. Be on the lookout. It's a great way to get involved and get connected with other believers and do life in community as, a, as the body and experience that grace that pardons and that grace that empowers us, that grace that transforms. We're about to sing the song, Firm Foundation. There's no firmer foundation to rest our hope upon than Christ. No matter what life brings, He is a sure, firm foundation for us. And we see that as we look through this letter of Peter. We see it in his own life. We see the exhortation. We see what the power of the gospel does in our lives. And we see it day in, day out in our lives as well. Oftentimes it's easy to not see it as we look at like, oh, well, I don't see anything different in my life. That's where the power of community is so helpful because they can see you over time and see how five years from now, you're not the same person you were. And God's, work, God's grace is at work in you to make you more like Jesus in the long run. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak through Peter to encourage us, to challenge us, to exhort us, even these few small verses. We see that your grace is sure. Your grace is powerful. Your grace enables us to stand firm. So we thank you. We ask that you would help us to stand firm. Help us to make those mundane, small choices as we trust you for what's next in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.